our scripture that can be found on the inside of the bulletin. This is the story of the wise men. Oh, I also do have a special announcement. My son, Will, is 16 years old today. He is... He is a big stud. So uh, when I grow up, I want to be like Will. He's my bodyguard, too. If you mess with me, I'm going to put Will on you. So, All right, let's look at our scripture. It's Matthew 2, 1 through 13. This is the story of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Well, it must have been a spectacle that day in Jerusalem when the retinue of the Magi came to town. They were from the east, and they came in their pomp and their circumstance, and the whole of Israel, of Jerusalem, was stirred when they saw them, indeed, when they gave information. Much is actually known about the Magi from the east, there was an eastern school of the Magi that history talks about that resided in Babylon. These Magi, as they were called, were advisors to the kings. Heterodotus, the ancient historian, said that they were one of the six tribes of the Medes, a priestly caste, much like the Levites in Israel. The Roman authors Cicero and Plutarch inform us that the Magi were the ones who instructed the kings and the priests in the east. They were especially consulted regarding the destinies of kings. The Parthian kings of the east had them as their advisors, and they were the ones who performed the ceremonies at their coronations. Tertullian, the ancient church father, said that many uh, who saw the Magi come considered them as being princes or, key, or kings in some early accounts. Possibly they were royalty. They were certainly advisors. They were important. 
The main occupation of the Magi was their interpretation of things that they considered divine. They principally dealt with the evaluations of dreams, visions, and astronomical signs. Astrological interpretation was of special importance to them. And so you can imagine when they came to town in their priestly robes with this message, where is the one born king of the Jews? They were respected highly, even by the Jewish people. The Jewish philosopher Philo said that they were men who gave themselves to the study of the laws of nature and that they contemplated on the divine perfections. And though the Magi believed that the power of the deity was manifested in the natural elements of fire, water, air, and earth, these Gentile priests did not set up material images in recognition of him. They were, in one way of looking at it, Gentiles who were leaning toward a monotheistic belief. We know that these people were important because they were received by Herod when they came. And when they gave the message and communicated the one had been born, their counsel was not dismissed. Rather, it says that all of Jerusalem was alarmed at the message that these advisors to the kings gave. You know, as I think about the wise men, we're not exactly sure what to do with them. There's the story of Jesus that's almost folksy, if you will. It's a little manger in a little corner of a little nowhere town. And then we have folks like this who come, who are not Jewish, who come from far away, and yet seem to understand the truth that is so hard for Herod and the other people to miss. The wise men are here to show us that the birth of Jesus Christ is not some sort of folksy tale. Rather, an international account, something that has happened, that continues to reverberate around the world, even to today. By all accounts by missiologists, by the end of this day, 25,000 Chinese people will have given their life to Christ. As the message continues to spread like wildfire. In other world religions, they seem to stay in their one particular geographic point. But Christianity flows around the world, ebbing and flowing, as the message of Jesus Christ continues to take ground and change lives. What are we to learn from the Magi? Simply this, that true wisdom always leads to worship. And that if you seek wisdom, at the end of wisdom, you will find a savior. That's what these Babylonian Magi did, and that's what we must do as well. The challenge of this, of my message this is coming at it from a little bit of a different way. Often people focus on the gifts of the Magi. There's no way I can cover all of this text. I want to focus more on the seeking of the Magi. The Magi were looking to be interrupted. They were looking for something and they found it. And they sought wisdom. And so we must seek wisdom in the truth of God's word, in the truth of God's world. And the wisdom that we find must ultimately lead to worship if it is true wisdom. Well, let's talk about this first point of seeking wisdom in the Word. How exactly did the Magi know? They came to Herod and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. 
An equal question we must ask is, why did the Magi care? Clearly, this was no ordinary king. He was a king of kings. Kings were born all the time. Not all the time, but there were kings. You cared for the king who was in your principality. He was the one who affected you, but not this king. No, the Magi somewhere had acquired wisdom. And because they had acquired this wisdom, they were looking for one. And they saw the signs, they knew when he arose. Well, this is how they figured this out. If you'll remember, the Jewish people were exiled in the year 605. They were, uh, they were not faithful to God's covenant. And God promised them that they were not faithful. He would exile them. He would scatter them to the nations. And there was the deportation of the Jewish people to Babylon through King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Daniel and other ones who were chosen, who were wise, and they were made part of the, of the, of the king's court. Well, Daniel so proved himself that he was appointed. This is Daniel 5.11. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. So speaking of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, in the time of your father, we have found him to have insight. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Daniel was the chief over the Magi in the year, uh, in the late 500s. As he was over the Magi, he would have taught them. He would have taught them the scriptures. They would have been incorporated into the wisdom literature. We tend to think of a backwards world back then, but there were massive libraries that were available, wisdom and knowledge. And Daniel would have taught them about the prophecy. If you look in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, there is this prophecy that's given to Daniel. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put to end to sin and to atone to, uh, for iniquity. But no one understand from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. And after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and it goes on and on. There's no way I can cover all of this material. But we know through Jeremiah that Daniel understood what was happening was that right then in 534 B.C., the edict was given for the temple to be rebuilt, for the Israelites to be able to return from Babylon. And so that was the beginning of the 70 weeks. In Hebrew, it's actually 77s. So I would go with that term instead. He's speaking prophetically, but it is somewhat eerie that of these 69 sevens, if you will, and on the 70th, the Messiah comes, 69 times seven, that's about, what, 420 years. The edict from Cyrus to rebuild the temple is around 430 years. Why are the Magi looking? They're doing the math. It's about that time. Indeed, wisdom literature in the time showed that there was, this is Suetonius, 
uh, in the second century said that a firm belief had long prevailed throughout the East that it was destined for the empire of the world at that time to be given to someone who should go forth from Judea. Even the Roman emperor Nero was advised by one or two of his court astrologers that it was prudent, prudent for him to move his city and uh, uh, the seat of his empire to Jerusalem because that city was then destined to become the capital of the world. There was broadspread knowledge that something was going to happen in Jerusalem. And they were looking. Wise people seek to understand why. See, the scriptures say to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. We are distinct from the animals because we ask the question why. We're able to look at circumstances. We're able to synthesize. It's a sign of wisdom to seek knowledge outside yourself. Remember my children, you know, when they're small, when you're a child, maybe you're still this way, I certainly am sometimes, you don't need any help. I've got this whole thing figured out, right? I can do it myself. I have all of the wisdom that I need. But as you grow, you realize that you need more information. You need to look outside of yourself. Our culture, I'm sad to say, has rejected wisdom. And because of that, the wisdom of our age is childish. Here's one of the prevailing philosophical truths which you will find in our universities. It's okay if what you say is true as long as it's simply true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. And everyone's whatever they say can be true as long as it's true for them and them alone. But you can't make truth true for me. Well, that's absurd. Any child will tell you that doesn't make sense. If one plus one equals two and you say one plus one equals four, both of them are not correct. Which one is? The whole point of truth is that it is true. You may also hear this on the university campus. Nothing is true. And that's the truth. It's a ridiculous statement. Yet people hold to that. How can nothing be true? And that's the truth. There's nothing that is absolute. And I'm absolutely certain of that. That there's nothing that is certain. Round and around our childish culture. The scripture says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But wisdom starts with understanding that there is a God. Sometimes I have this discussion with people. Who made you? The prevailing notion of our culture, our secular culture, is that no one made us, that we are an accident that we are this thing that occurred because of a chance a mutation along with radiation developing from smaller, smaller, simple-celled organisms ultimately to proteins and radiation. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from a mass of energy that, create, that came from this singularity that occurred in a, ported, a point in time a long time ago. Well, where did that come from? See, wisdom understands that nothing comes from nothing. Something always has to create nothing. And so the only answer that must come is that there is some uncaused being that has always existed that brings life, that has the ability to bring life out of that which does not exist. 
Well, we can't believe that. Why? Because there is no God. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, uh, well, actually, I'll get that into a little bit. I don't know if you've ever had a child and played peekaboo with them. Children are very, very interesting. When you play peekaboo with them, this is what they actually think. If I close my eyes, you don't exist. Oh, you're there again. They're not playing peekaboo in terms of you can't see me. They're playing peekaboo, I can't see you. Because all we're, all of life revolves around them. But wisdom tells us that I am not the center of life. We too, my friends, like the Magi, have been given the Scriptures. People on the university campus will say that the Scriptures are myths. They're legends. You can't trust them. I point you to Luke 2, 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Does that sound like myth or legend to you? No, that's history. Paul's letters were, be, were designed to be circulated. They were instructive. This is the language of, uh, of not myth, of not legend. The beauty of the internet, or the terror for Dan Rather, so to speak, is that it exposes all. In my pajamas, I can wake up and I can travel by internet to the universities at Oxford, Cambridge, Duke, Munster, Egypt, and I can uncover and examine every single ancient manuscript of the New Testament before 400 AD by 9 a.m. It's all available. There are over 24,000 manuscripts in existence out there today, many of which I can access through the Internet. We have plenty of scriptures to cross-check, to show that we have what was written. We have the truth, much more than the Magi. The question is, will we examine them? Further, we know, unlike the Magi, that Christ has come and been resurrected. And the only reason why Christianity exists at all is because 12 disciples who cowered in an upper room when they were killed stood up in the center of Jerusalem 50 days later claiming they had seen him alive. It is because of the resurrection that Christianity exists today. And so we must choose to seek wisdom like the Magi or reject it outright. I was talking about C.S. Lewis. There's this interesting concept because some people say, well, I don't believe all this. I'm a scientist. I believe in reason. I believe in, uh, you believe in faith. I believe in reason. Lewis talks about two things, magic and science. He says that there was a magician's bargain in the medieval ages in which man surrenders object after object and finally himself to nature in return for power. You will find people who write about the 16th century as if magic were a medieval survival and science the new thing that came in to sweep it away. Those who have studied the period know better. There was very little magic in the Middle Ages. The 16th and 17th centuries are the high noon of magic. The serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other strong and throve. 
but they were twins. They were born of the same impulse. And the impulse was to understand and be able to twist reality to my desire. See, the wise men of old, their cardinal problem was to how to conform the soul to reality. But to the magician, it was how to conform reality to the soul. So the magi were the true scientists in that they were seeking to understand the world and conform themselves to it rather than conform the world to themselves. Let me suggest to you that much of science today falls more in the realm of magic, a goal of reinterpreting reality in order to subvert it to myself rather than understanding reality and subverting myself to it. So my question for you is this, where do you get wisdom? I have my truth, Carlos. You have yours. And everybody's happy as long as we have our truth. But God does not give us that option because God has given us truth. He's given us the scriptures to let us know who God is like, how he wishes us to live, how to know him. We all have the truth of the scriptures. The question is, will we conform ourselves to his truth? Did Jesus not say, whoever hears these words of mine and believes them, He's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The storm came and the streams rose, but it did not fall. You will have the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so as you go about your day, when you go to work, in relationship with friends and families, have you examined questions? Why am I here? Do you conform yourself to God's truth? Because the scriptures testify about Jesus Christ. It was the Magi who were wise and Herod who was a fool. Well, we must conform ourselves to the truth of the word, but we must also conform ourselves to the truth of the earth. It's very interesting how the Magi knew. They said, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What exactly does it mean we saw his star? Did you know Jesus had a star? There's something very interesting. It was an astronomical event that drew the Magi there. Now you feel like, well, there's not much about this star, is there? There's actually nine facts about this star that can be gleaned. Number one, this star signaled his birth. When the star came, his birth came. This particular star is associated with kingship. And he is the king of the Jews. It gives us a clue about the Magi. They were looking for a Jewish king. Number four, it must rise in the east. Number five, it appeared at an exact time. Number six, Herod didn't know when it appeared. Number seven, it endured over a considerable period of time, led them from Babylon to Jerusalem. Number eight, it went ahead of them as they traveled from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Now, Jerusalem is to the west of Babylon, but Bethlehem is to the south of Jerusalem. And number nine, the star stopped. So you have a star that appeared at an exact time, rose over them to Jerusalem, 
took a 90-degree turn to Bethlehem and stopped. Can stars do that? They actually can. We're coming up on the winter solstice. When is that? Tomorrow? You know what solstice means? Stop. Sun, stop. It's the longest day. It's when the sun stops and reverses course, retrogrades. The point I'm trying to make here is the Magi were astronomers, so they saw the truth in the stars. And God not only uses his word to communicate, special revelation we call it, but he uses creation itself to communicate. Do not the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies pour forth his work? The stars show his order. And God even uses astronomical phenomena sometimes to punctuate events. Remember when Jesus died, what occurred? It was an eclipse. Now, God flung the universe into space, whirling at trillions of miles an hour. Do you understand the calculation that would need to take so that six hours one Friday, there would be an eclipse at that very time? There is something that occurred that led these magi. So I want you to think like a magi for just a little bit. Okay? They would have sought the text and they would look for information about a star. Is there information in the New Testament, I mean in the Old Testament, about a star? Yes. Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. By the way, star and, and scepter are both symbols for kingship. They would have looked further about, well, where is this scepter? Genesis 49, 8. By the way, this is maybe the most technically advanced sermon I've ever preached before. Okay, if you make it through even half of this, you will have a PhD in astrophysics. Okay? When, um, uh, when uh, Israel puts his hand upon Judah... He says, your brothers, Judah, and he prophesies over Judah. He says, your brothers will praise you, the other 11 tribes. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped, up, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And who dares rouse, uh, rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is why the people uh, believed that the Messiah would come from Judah's tribe, the Lion of Judah. The Lion was the symbol, by the way, for Judah. Well, here's what's amazing about the stars. It was Johann Kepler, that'll be on the test in a little bit, who discovered the laws of planetary motion. The stars are like clockwork. They function exactly the same. They're the most incredible watch. Now with software, anyone can get on a computer and I can tell you exactly what the star looked like on February 3rd, two th you, know, you know, the year 536 AD. Because stars have their exact motion. Kepler, by the way, wanted to, to find the star. He loved the Lord. He was a Christian. But it was done mathematically once at a time. You know, it would take him uh, months to figure out one specific day. And for so long, they could not find this particular star. Well, it was recently found by an attorney, no less. 
See, one of the reasons the problems was that Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that Herod's death was not before 4 B.C. Uh, that's before Christ. And therefore, they were putting the date of, of uh, Jesus at around 5 or 6 B.C. Well, guess what? They discovered a copying error was the primary cause. So Kepler and all these people were using the wrong date. A printer typesetting the manuscript of Josephus' antiquities messed it up in the year 1544. Every single Josephus manuscript dating from before 1544 supports the inference that Herod passed in 1 BC. And by the way, all the ancient scholars put his birth at around 2 or 3 BC. But we didn't want to pay attention to those guys because we knew better. Well, knowing this, then it was simply a question of examining the skies at 3 and 2 BC. But in order to do that, you had to examine the nine points. See, nobody looks at the scriptures, and so they didn't look at these nine points. The star would have moved from the east, that it would have stopped at a certain time, that it would have turned and moved south. What's this whole thing about king of the Jews? And so this attorney, who was skilled in deduction, ran all the math, and they discovered the name of the star. And the star is called Regulus also known as the king. The Romans referred to it as rex, which means king in Latin. In Arabia, the star was known as the kingly one. The Greeks called it the king star. It follows the sun's ecliptic orbit, and as such, it's the one that follows the king, or the king's sun, so to speak. At a certain time, it was in conjunction with Jupiter, the kingly planet, the biggest of all of them, appeared on the sky, moved west, stopped at a certain time, and went south with Jupiter. By the way, Jupiter, uh, the word planet, uh, there are certain stars that don't, or planets that don't move like regular stars. They stop, they start like our sun. That's why you use the word planet, which literally means to blunder. They didn't understand in the ancient world why some of these stars would stop and turn. has to do with retrogression. You know, when you're driving by and you look at something, again, very technically competent sermon. I'm, I'm working on my doctoral PhD. What does all this mean? When you look at all of these things, one star comes to mind. And the time that it occurs, the kingly star Regulus. Does not the earth proclaim the beauty of the Lord. If you want to know more about this, by the way, go online, Bethlehemstar.com. Special thanks to Roger Pence, who provided me with some of this information. Why am I telling you all of these things? Because the universe literally shouts. Would it not make sense that at the birth of the Son of God, there would be singular instances that would occur? to show, to proclaim, as creation rejoiced at the king's birth? Would it not make sense? The world is literally screaming, there is a God. And the scriptures are screaming, his name is Jesus. And the Magi were wise. This is my challenge for you, church. Use your brain and use your mind. 
young people. Maybe there's a Kepler in here. Worship comes from wisdom. So be wise and help us to worship. Do you look around the world or do you simply accept the interpretation of what this world gives us, of what it tells us? The older I get, the more I realize that there is a God and I am not Him. And as I lift my heads and look at the starry host, I am led to worship a king who is so great that he can fling the stars into the sky. And just at the right point, they may proclaim. Well, as I said, wisdom always leads to worship. And worship takes action, doesn't it? I love these magi. What did they do? They didn't simply observe and comment and go about their business. No, they started on an 800-mile journey, traveling. Traveling was a dangerous affair, particularly if you had a lot of money. They outfitted at great expense their caravan in order to come. And though they were rich and wise, they understood their place. They didn't simply come to look at the king. They came to worship him. Can you imagine standing before a baby? By the way, he, was a, he wasn't an infant at the time. Okay, the word is different in Greek. He was a, uh, uh, I mean, he wasn't an infant. He was a toddler. We don't exactly know his age. Not even toddler necessarily, but he wasn't an infant. It would have taken them time, remember? When the star rose, they saw his birth and they'd come to worship him. But there was nothing fancy when that star was right over that particular little house. And as they walked in and saw a carpenter and his teenage wife and child in their simple clothing to bow their knee to present gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Wisdom looks through simple outer veneers and sees the truth beneath. My hope, my friends, for you and me for this Christmas season is that we would be wise. That we would see reality for what it truly is. That we would worship the true king and not be willing to sacrifice for other kings that aren't kings at all. The world will not see Jesus Christ until he comes in his kingly power. And the scriptures say that at that time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until then, there will be many that will not accept. But we are not many. We are the magi, the wisdom seekers. And God has given his word and his creation and it leads straight to him. And so let us travel on our lives the road may be hard. The cost may be great. But along the way, the star will lead us. And at the proper time, we will bow before Jesus Christ and His Father and present our gifts, our hearts, our love, and our devotion and witness as the Magi witness.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for truth. And Lord, uh, the heavens shout and the scriptures scream. Lord, let us hear and rejoice and follow. For wisdom leads to worship. Give us more wisdom that we may even more worship. We pray all these things in Christ's name.